0: Ever since Donald Trump spoke on the campaign trail of a new federal program to promote school choice, the education world has waited to see if and how his administration would follow through. That question was finally answered last Thursday when Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, along with Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Representative Bradley Byrne of Alabama, announced a bill to create a nationwide tax credit to provide school choice scholarships. But with that answer comes a new set of questions. Is the proposal a major opportunity for school choice proponents? Or does it threaten to politicize what has thus far been a bipartisan effort? Why look to the federal tax code in particular as a vehicle to promote school choice? And with Democrats in control of the House of Representatives, is there a plan to get the bill enacted? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Jim Blue, Assistant Secretary for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development at the U.S. Department of Education. Jim is a key member of Secretary DeVos's policy team and has agreed to answer a few questions about their new proposal today. Jim, welcome to the EdNext podcast.
1: Thank you, I'm looking forward to the discussion.
0: So let's start with the basics. What is an Education Freedom Scholarship and how would this new federal program work? Sure, in one sentence,
1: the administration, Secretary DeVos, is proposing a new federal tax credit designed to encourage donations to scholarships for elementary and secondary students. Now there's a lot of, a lot more to the proposal, but in essence, that's all it is. Uh, it's a one-for-one tax credit, federal tax credit, for people who contribute to scholarship programs. Because it's a novel proposal, if you don't mind, let me talk about two or three things that make it different from what has been presented Um, previously. So first, um, it's important to note that uh, the scholarships will be funded by voluntary contributions. In fact, if no one contributes, there will be no scholarships. Everything about the program is voluntary. Uh, No student is forced to uh, participate. No one is forced to contribute. And in fact, no state uh, is forced to participate in the program. Uh, The second thing we'd like to point out is that it's actually not a federal program. All it is is a tax credit, and in fact, the proposal explicitly requires states uh, to design and control these programs. Uh, That means they get to set which students are eligible, which education providers are eligible, uh, scholarship amounts, uh, actually all of the details related to scholarship programs. And the final thing is that Secretary DeVos and I and others are eager to promote school choice, Um, but that doesn't mean only private school choice. Uh, The programs designed by states can be focused on creating public school options. And as we've spoken to members of Congress, they've gotten excited about things like a dual enrollment for um, career and technical education, apprenticeship programs. Uh, After-school scholarships for students who are falling behind. Uh, so it is both a it's a proposal to encourage choice, public and private school choice.
0: So I hear you saying that it's not a federal program; it's a tax credit. But clearly, by offering a tax credit, the federal government would be encouraging these donations more so than in the case if those credits are not available, and it would also be encouraging states to set up these kinds of programs. It seems to me that what's most important about what you just said is this defining feature of the bill being flexibility for states in determining what any program they would establish under it would look like why was that so important and what are some examples of the different decisions you think states could make if it were enacted
1: well thank you first of all uh it isn't a program but it is a new (laughs) role for the federal government we appreciate that and tax policy is often used, or the tax code is often used to promote policy. And in this case, what we're promoting is additional choice for families across the country. We thought it was very important to let states design their own programs, because no two states are alike. Um, what a Wyoming might need, where um, there's a there's a lot of need for um, uh, distance classes so that students can take advanced uh, coursework um, in some of the rural areas, um, you know, that may be where a state like Wyoming will, will go. Um, but, you know, in, in a state that's more urban, uh, they might focus more on a different type of choice. So we didn't want to be in a position where we were telling anyone a one-size-fits-all scholarship program
0: makes sense. And tell us about the advantages that this tax credit for contributions to state organizations approach has over other possible federal approaches to school choice such as a national school voucher program
1: right well first of all the tax credit scholarship idea was uh given birth in states um about 18 states already have this sort of approach using state tax credits um so what uh what one of the virtues of the, that program is that it's voluntarily uh, funded uh, and um, there is less uh, of a heavy hand from state regulators uh, when you do that. Because um, if, it's, uh, if it's money flowing directly from the Treasury, sometimes a lot of the rules and regulations uh, that have been set locally follow the new providers uh, under the scholarship programs.
0: Now, one of the surprising things I noticed in actually reading this proposed legislation is the complexity of the funding formula. I think it takes up seven pages of a 24-page bill. There are references to how many children are in the state, how many poor children are in the state, and then the share of students in the state who use a state finance scholarship that permits them to attend a private school. Was it hard to get agreement on how to divvy up this billion, I believe, would be the total amount that would be available across the 50 states. And can you explain to our listeners briefly, how's it going to be divided up under this proposal?
1: Sure. Um, That sounds more complicated than it is, Marty. But the first point to make is that it's not a funding formula. It's an allocation formula. So the program is capped out at, as you mentioned, $5 billion a year. So when you know you have a cap, and it's, it's actually unusual in the tax code to have a credit that is capped out like for things like electric cars or windmills or things like that, we don't uh, put a cap on it. In this case, we needed to put a cap on it. Um, and as, as a result, you're in a situation where you have to figure out how states get allocated the funding um, opportunity. So the first step we're taking uh, is to distribute the credits by state according to a formula that's in the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Uh, it's under Title II-A, and it's based largely on the number of children in poverty in a state. Uh, so, a more impoverished state would get um, higher allocation than um, based on its uh, just general population. So, that is the very first step. Now. We imagine, and let me just take us. let me pause for a second there. Um, the formula does have a minimum. It's 0.5%, and that's $25 million. So every state, no matter how small their student population, would get at least $25 million. At the other end of the spectrum, you have states like California and Texas, very large states with high um, low-income populations, they each get more than $500 million in credits allocated to them. But again, nobody gets scholarships unless people fund those scholarships. The next step in the process, and this is why it ends up being uh, multiple pages, um, while we think this is a very attractive program and that every state would want to have scholarships for students um, available to them, We we imagine there may be states who decide they're not going to participate. And if that's the second step, that any funds that are not distributed in the first round or or not taken advantage of in the first round would be um, distributed to other states that have participated. You just change the denominator.
0: And so one of the things this means is that if I'm a state and this proposal were to be enacted, then there's an incentive for me to create an eligible program so that I can take advantage of the tax credit and my citizens can take advantage of it.
1: Exactly right. And one of the things we want to make sure is that once a family has a scholarship and a good situation for their child, we don't want it to uh, disappear. And as a result, um, there is a ratchet effect. So if Texas uses $100 million worth of scholarships the first year, then they would get at least $100 million the second year. That amount is locked in to ensure that no child loses a scholarship.
0: So you've had a chance to lay out the rationale for the tax credit, why it's been designed the way it has. Let's turn to some of the criticism that has been launched so far. It's no surprise that uh, any new proposal brings with it plenty of criticism these days. And one would just be to start with the financial impact. Uh, As you mentioned, the tax credit is capped at $5 billion. It could get a bit higher based on the consideration you just mentioned. What would you say to someone concerned about the expense of creating a new $5 billion tax credit at a time when the federal government is already running at a deficit and accumulating debt? And in other words, how's it paid for?
1: So the question of how it's paid for is a different one than the value of providing choice to families across the country. We see choice as transformative. Uh, it is what healthy, highly effective systems always include, the ability to choose among providers. Uh, so we, we see the value of that $5 billion to be quite high. Um, there is, in Washington terms a pay for or an offset um that is something that will get determined by Congress and they're looking at several of the other tax credits uh that are underutilized they would streamline them uh and that would be used to pay for uh the scholarships
0: and apart from the fiscal impact when this proposal was unveiled it seemed to me that there were two main lines of attack there were critics from the right who said that this was an unwarranted federal intrusion into education policy, traditionally a matter for states and their localities. And then there were those on the left who described it as a attack on public education itself. What's your response to those criticisms?
1: Well, we weren't totally surprised um, by uh, either of the lines of attack. Um, frankly, we wish that they had been more creative than just recycling their boilerplate language, uh, it would help to actually read the bill uh, before you criticize it. Um, I think in in this case, it's helpful to sort of name names uh, in the process. Um, You know, uh, most of the right has come out strongly in favor of this proposal. Um, The American Enterprise Institute, the Americans for Tax Reform, and other groups um, on the right. Um, There is one exception, and that's the Heritage Foundation, Um, and they have taken the position that um, if the federal government is involved in education, it should only be with um, American uh, natives, with military-connected children, and students who reside in D.C. Uh, So they would prefer that the government not be involved at all in anything beyond those three populations. That train left the station a long time ago. Um, Their other position is a very interesting one. It's that um, if the federal government is going to be involved, um, well, that that will inevitably lead to bad outcomes. Uh, And the reason and the way they personify that is if Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren were to get elected, they would start doing things to the private school participants and other education providers uh, that would be uh, counterproductive um, you know all i can say in response to that is like, betsy devos ted cruz they're well known for limiting the federal role in edu- in local education and so um I-, I guess heritage thinks that you know they're being duped or something, Uh, but, you know, we're talking about two of the lions of uh, local control in the country. Uh, And then, you know, the other um, part of it is once you start worrying about what future presidents are going to do, um, like we probably would be paralyzed. We would never do anything. Um, The reality is this is a voluntary program. And so if something could happen in the future. Um, you know, one side of me wants to just dismiss that as fear mongering, but even if it were the case, um, schools could decide not to participate anymore, states could decide uh, not to participate. I think Heritage would have had a sounder concern if they said we're worried about what states would do under this program, and on that, I agree we should be vigilant to make sure that states don't overregulate the education providers.
0: And how about the line of attack from the left to characterize this as, as I said, an attack on public education itself?
1: Yeah. So again, it's useful to name names. The critique is coming from the teacher union leaders um, here in uh, Washington, the national teacher union leaders. Uh, And we're not surprised. They've made a calculation that if families had choice, they would not... Go to public schools that have been unionized and where their members work. And so uh, we appreciate they have a self interest to fight this proposal. Um, and they have a lot of allies. You know, they help to get a lot of people elected in every election cycle. So uh, we do know this is going to be a tough battle, but we will be appealing to members of Congress to say we appreciate um, the role of the teacher unions here but we also have families that are crying out for more school choices.
0: So let's continue on that shift towards talking about the politics of the proposal. The Senate version of this bill was introduced by Senator Cruz. It has five additional co-sponsors, all Republicans. The House version was introduced by Bradley Byrne. It has 39 original co-sponsors, all Republicans. Do you see any way to get Democrats to back this bill? And If not, how's it going to become law, given that the Democrats control the House majority?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I totally accept your premise. Uh, No bill passes in this environment without it being a bipartisan bill. Um, We have designed this bill to be appealing to both sides of the aisle. Um, There's no reason that a Democrat wouldn't want to have scholarships, especially scholarships that they get to design themselves. Remember, this is not an imposition from the federal government, they get to design it. Um, so we think it's an attractive proposal. Um, you know from your own polling that school choice is very popular among uh, voters. It's particularly popular with public school parents. But again, we, we realize that this isn't gonna happen overnight. Uh, we wanna get into a dialogue with the members of Congress about the benefits and power of school choice, and we'll go up against the political machine that we know the teacher unions are funding uh, to continue making our case until we do prevail. Um, The reason I would almost say passage is inevitable, Uh, it just will take some time as we continue to make our case across both sides of the aisle um, and have more and more parents stand up and say, this would be good for my children.
0: My guest today has been Jim Blue, Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Education. Jim, thanks for being part of the podcast.
1: Marty, thank you very much for having me.
0: You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. While you're there, be sure to check out our archive, and especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.